the parable begins with this introduction in verse 21. And Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall, I, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And I don't think I need to worry about spoilers as we talked about this morning because you, you know the rest of the story. But if you want to understand a parable, it is very important to understand that these stories do not just exist in a vacuum. And sometimes we just pull out a story and it you know, exists in a vacuum. For instance, uh, I, I forget if we're going to do the story of the prodigal son. We might, I, didn't look, I don't have my list in front of me. I know it's not one I have chosen. But uh, sometimes we pull that story out and we talk about uh, you know, that experience of sometimes we have prodigals in our family and that sort of thing, and, and that's fine. But there is a purpose for that parable. It was because the Pharisees that were in charge, so to speak, looked down on people, and they believed they were self-righteous. They had no need to have any change in their lives. And because of their lack of humility and compliance, Jesus has to come along and talk about this story. And the real point of the story is not the reaction necessarily of the father or the behavior of the prodigal son. The real point of the story is how the older brother reacted because that's how the Pharisees were reacting. So just an example of that. So you have to get the context of what's going on. And if you understand what happens in verse 21 and following, I want to take you up to the beginning of chapter 18. It says in verse 1, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And I think there was a little bit of self-serving intention in that. Who's greatest in the, in the, heaven, who's the, greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is it me? Can I at least be in the top three? You know, I, I, it doesn't say it in the text, but and you understand there are other places in the Gospels where it talked about it talks about you know let, let sit at my right hand, left hand, all that sort of thing. Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, "Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted to become like, as a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven." That's, I mean, Jesus does not pull any punches either, does he? I mean, he, he doesn't say maybe could be you know possibility. Unless you become, in this context of what he's going to be talking about, like a little child, you're not going to get anywhere near the kingdom of heaven. In this case, he doesn't use a parable. He uses a, an object lesson, brings a child in and looks at him. And then verse 4 says this, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one, one little child like this in my name receives me. So the point of this whole teaching in chapter 18 is on humility. If God is going to work in our hearts, we have to humble ourselves. We can't act like we are in charge or we're better or any of that sort of thing. And he says, look at this little child. You're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to humble yourself. You have to understand that there is a God and you're not him. We have to understand that there's a God to whom we're responsible. He is not responsible to us. Now, He takes care for us. I don't want to misstate that, but He's God. He gets to do whatever He wants. And then He warns about, in verses 6 through 9, about offending a little one and the, 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 the severity of, of, of that. And then in the, the parable of the lost sheep is in verse 10. And basically here He's saying, we, we care for that one lost sheep, you know, uh, 90, 99 sheep in the flock, but the, the, the shepherd goes out looking for that one, the significance of the one, and to humble yourself and be on that level of concern. And then verses 15 through 20 is uh, this passage about how you deal with a sinning brother and so forth. And we sometimes look at that in the context of church discipline. 
So after all of that, humility and, and, and you know, that sort of thing, then Peter asked the question. I've wondered why Peter asked the question. I mean, he's the one who asked the question. That's why it's here. But why is Peter the one who gives voice to it? Uh, he seems to have not been particularly a shy individual. He oftentimes speaks up. Oftentimes when he says something, what he says is not what he should have said. Or maybe there was something in Peter's life that really led him this way, but I think, I think it shows something of his heart because we're talking about humility and Jesus is laying down this teaching and Peter is not picking it up because he purports to show himself as magnanimous, but he's missing the point because he says, how often shall I, my brother, sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, there's a reason he uses the word seven, the, the, the number seven times. The rabbis of Jesus' day, we know this from extra-biblical literature, would teach people that if someone sins against you once, you forgive them. Sin against you twice, you forgive them. Sin against them three times, you forgive them. Four, you're off the hook. It's three strikes and you're out. And they base that of a re- from a repeated phrase, taken out of context, by the way, that you find in the book of Amos. Several times in the book of Amos, as Amos is speaking on behalf of God about the wickedness of the people around him, he says, you know, for three things the Lord would do something, yea, four, and that three to four kind of uh, uh, statement became something that they picked up and said, well, that's how we should behave. One, two, three, then we're off the hook. We can hold a grudge. We can hold hostility. We can do whatever. And Peter, when he says, how about this? He's going to more than double the teaching of the rabbis. He thinks this is going to be like, wow, if, if I say I could forgive and give seven times, I'm, I'm somebody. I, I've arrived. So he says, how many? Seven times? Thinking probably that Jesus, being a rabbi in his estimation, is going to say, oh, Peter. And maybe this is factoring in Peter's mind when they were talking about who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He talks about humility. Maybe this is, maybe this is a subtle way of Peter. And I don't want to describe too much ill intent because this is somewhat speculative. But perhaps Peter is, is trying to be the standout disciple here. I am more generous. I am more lenient. I am more forgiving than even the rabbis teach by more than double. That's perhaps the truth. Maybe it was just an honest answer, an honest question. And then Jesus plunges into the story. We're going to get the, the facts and evidence, as they say, and then we're going to break this down. So the key to understanding is humility. I just I shared that with you. Thank you for getting that on the screen. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times. I wonder at that moment where that comma appears, what Peter may have thought at that. Oh, it's not seven times. Oh, wow. I can lower the bar, right? But up to 70 times seven. Now, Jesus is not saying 490 is the limit either. It's just a way of saying, you say you're being generous at seven, I'm just going to blow the lid off of that and say, 70 times seven, you got to go way beyond that. You're missing the point, in essence. Uh, if, if this would have transpired in our day, probably someone would have invented the, the sin against you app, you know, you know. Someone, the boss is in a bad mood and says something nasty, that's 488. You know, he gives you extra work and no one else has to do any extra work, that's 489, you know. That's not what this is about. 
And that's what the story is about to tell us that, that what this is about. So let me just read the parable in its totality, and then we'll study it in some depth. Verse 22 again, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to, began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, the master commanded that he be sold, his wife and children, and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Notice at this point, I promised I wasn't going to break in, but I did break in, didn't I? Anyway, he promised. He's not asking for forgiveness. He just says, give me more time. Okay, that's important. I won't do that again. 27. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. And that servant went out, found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So the fellow servant fell down at his feet, begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. But he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Then his fellow servants saw what had been done. They were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And the master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. If, we, if the story ended at verse 34, if the, if the teaching ended at verse 34, it wouldn't be near as uncomfortable if you have to look at verse 35. But we have to see what God says, all right? So let's think our way through this for just a moment. Uh, we saw the examples, all right? And you can bring those up if you want. The children, the lost sheep, the offending brother. Examples of humility that, that we, need to, we need to respond to God's call and God's grace in our life, okay? And uh, here's the example we're going to look at, this unforgiving servant. He is called to be an example. Now, let's think with us for just a little moment. And uh, let's go back to Peter for just a moment. He said to him, up to seven times, Jesus said, no, but 70 times seven. And I want you to think with me, and I, 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 I don't know if I've ever thought of this before, but if you forgive you really can't keep a number. Because if someone does something and, and they come to you and they say, would you forgive me? And you say, I'm going to forgive you. That means I'm not going to bring this up anymore. I'm not going to exact any punishment from you. I'm not going to hold this against you. You are free from that. So if they do something else to you again and you say two, you didn't really forgive one, right? Because if, if we really forgive and they sin again, it's one. Does that make sense? And you think of what God says to us. God says, I will rem speaking of his erring people, I will remember their sin no more. I, I'm not, how can a God who knows everything that's ever been known, everything that's possible to be known, and he willfully, as an act of love, says, I'm not even going to remember that. 
I don't think it presses the point too much to say this, that if God is something we have sinned against him, we have a great selection to choose from, that uh, if we seek forgiveness and we confess it and he's forgiven us, it's under the blood. If we take that same exact sin, that particular instance, and you go back to God and say, Lord, will you forgive me for this? In all honesty, God could look over the, the banister of heaven and say, I don't know what you're talking about because it's, not, it's gone. So the fact that you're counting off sins is an indication that you're not really forgiving. Now, I also know how that makes me feel and maybe how it makes you feel because we know in our flesh this is enormously difficult to just say it's gone. Now, we do not have the ability... Maybe it would happen in time, but uh, we do not have, you know, we do not have a, 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 an erase button on the, our memory banks where we can just say, I, not, I can't even remember that. But we can get to a point where it's not going to be brought up, it's not going to be held against, it's not going to be acted upon, we'd set that person free. So the reality is that that's how forgiveness works. And he says in verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like... So he uses that phrase that he used back in, in that was mentioned, I should say, back in, the, in verse 1 and verse, chapter 18. It's used again in verse 4 and so forth, the kingdom of God. In, in God's way of working, in God's economy, in God's plan, this is how it works. It's like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. I'll give you a little clue when you're studying parables. If it involves a king, you can probably figure out who the king usually represents, Right? Okay, so it's sort of the, the, the position of God. And uh, he was going to settle accounts with his servants. And again, it speaks of responsibility. We all have responsibilities before God. We also know that we've not lived up to those responsibilities. That's why we need forgiveness. And that's why we need a Savior. And then Jesus uses a very extreme set of, 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 of realities in this narrative. And he said, we're going to settle accounts. One was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. Now, a talent is a measure of weight, okay? We'd say ounces or pounds, whatever, but a talent is a measure of weight. And it's a measure of weight that's applied to precious metals that is used as monetary, a monetary commodity, such as gold and silver. Now, you might have a study Bible. It might give you a number at the bottom how much a talent of gold is. The problem is in different phases of history, even Old Testament to New Testament to post-New Testament times, a talent would weigh different amounts. And uh, the best estimates that I've been able to dig out ranges, a talent ranges either somewhere from 60 to 100, and, 100, so, 100 or so, maybe a little more than 100 pounds of weight. Now you think, let's just, let's, just, let's just take something in the middle and say 80 pounds for sake of argument. 80 pounds of gold... I'd like to carry that around. It's an enormous sum of money. And then he says, how many bags of 80-pound bags of gold does this guy owe him? He says, 10,000. That, that, is, that is more than we can ever imagine. In fact, there's a place in, in history where King Herod, who was the king who was in charge when Jesus was born and the wise men came to him, that Herod, we know him in history as Herod the Great, that it's recorded one year for his whole kingdom, the net proceeds coming into the kingdom was 900 talents. 
So 900 talents was, the, was, the, was the, the kingdom's economy, if you want to say it that way. It was its GDP. So when Jesus says 10,000 talents, it's just an astronomically big number. You might wonder why Jesus didn't say millions or billions or something. That's because in the Greek in which Matthew writes, the largest number in Greek of that day was 10,000. That was the largest denomination of a number that's in their language. You remember over in Revelation where John, as he looks and he sees this mass of worshipers around the throne, and he says the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. You ever wonder why he just didn't say billions, millions? He didn't have a word for that. So he used the maximum word he had and multiplied it. 10,000 times 10,000, thousands of thousands, just to say this innumerable company. So Jesus uses the largest monetary number that he can use in this language that we have in the original language. So he goes to the extreme. So the man had absolutely zero chance of paying it off. It, it, it just borders on the incredible. No way. But when he was not able to pay, I would think not. His master commanded that he be sold, his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. That might seem, but wow, that's, you know, people who don't pay their debts usually aren't thrown in jail. There might be other sanctions and that sort of thing, but they typically don't get thrown in prison forever. And their children and wives don't get sold into slavery. But in this economy, that's, that, that could have been done and until you paid it off. Verse 26, the servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Now, based on what I just said, you know he would not live long enough to even be able to pay off a fraction of that debt. But he doesn't ask for forgiveness. He's asking, Lord, if you just give me a little, give me more time, help me to not do that. And then you have this statement which mirrors the heart of God in the matter. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion. Suddenly he isn't acting upon the scales of justice. He's acting upon the scales of mercy. Okay. He's gone to a different measuring system. 10,000 talents of gold, that's what's on the books, that's what you owe, that's what you owe. I can't pay, you're going to be sold, all your possessions sold, your family's sold into slavery, and that's the way it is. And then he sees him as he begs before him for additional time. He moves it to a different scale and he's moved with compassion. And that's how God treats us. We owe a debt because of our sin. That couldn't, I mean... What's the debt? 10,000 talents worth of debt, perhaps? It's a number that could never be paid by us. And the fact of the matter is, we couldn't even pay God for one sin that we were committed. Because anything we do, good works, trying to reform our lives, whatever, whatever it is, doesn't, doesn't make up for sin. Because the wages of sin is death. Period. And fortunately for us, as you well know, God moved it to the scale of compassion. And he forgave him the debt. But the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants and owed him a hundred denarii. He could have earned that in a few days. Okay? Denarii is a very small denomination. The smallest, uh, not the smallest denomination, but the, it was the, kind of the standard. Okay? Kind of, the, kind of the, what you would get paid in wages for the working man or the laborer. So a very small amount, and certainly comparatively. And uh, so the servant, this is 29, fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Interestingly, the same exact words that he had said to his master. 
And you know the response. We've already read it. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Now, I want to go run back to the end of the story for just a moment. Okay, so the, the other servants, they're appalled by this. And uh, they told the master, he brings them in. And it says in 34, And the master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So I want to, I want to, just, I want to put this on, on screen in front of you, and I want you to think with me for a moment. This is the progression of this man, okay? At the beginning of the story, this unforgiving servant deserved justice. He owed a debt. Somehow he created the debt. He allowed this debt to grow to this enormous amount. He deserved justice but he received mercy. In receiving that mercy, here's, what he, here's where he really went, up, went, went off the rails. He despised the grace that he had received. He didn't honor it. He didn't cherish it. He didn't say, that's how I should live. I'm, I'm set free from this debt I could never pay. Generosity is going to be my watchword. Instead, he despised grace, and what he received ultimately was the justice He's just as bad off at that point as he was at the beginning of the story. He, he deserved justice. He received mercy. He despised grace. And then he ultimately received justice. It's interesting how that sort of just circles back around. And, and, don't, and don't think of justice as, you know, you ever hear people use the word karma? Well, first of all, that came from, comes from a false religion, ultimately. But, you know, oh, karma, it's going to come around. You know, it's, everything's going to balance out. God's justice is way beyond that. God's justice is pure and holy. It's not just a settling of, 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 of some score. It's the settling of every score. And he is the judge of all things. It's a much higher thing than, than that. So, you see how that unfolds. So... How do you despise grace? What, what, what is really at play here? What is the problem? What is, what is at the core of all that's going on? Well, I want to just talk for a moment about, before we get to maybe exploring the, the real, what I believe is the center piece of this whole parable, I also want to think about who this harms, okay? And you can bring that up if you like. In this case, we know that unforgiveness harms other people, Right? So his unforgiveness ultimately uh, uh, harmed this man that he was not going to forgive. You know, he'd been forgiven this 10,000. He owed him a few, you know, measly coins, and he, he harms that person by throwing him in prison. Uh, it also harms ourselves. That's exactly what Jesus is teaching, because his, exactly because of his, his, his unwillingness to forgive, he winds up receiving the justice that he was, was averted from him by the grace of and the mercy of the master. And lastly, by Jesus' stated reaction of the master in verse 34, and what he says in 35, it also harms the righteous heart of God himself. And of all those things, it's bad enough to hurt someone else. It's bad enough to hurt ourselves. But to think of making a, a strike at the heart of God, that's, that's what he's telling us in this story. And he, he puts it in that way. So how do we, how do we arrange this? How do, we, how do we understand this? How do we go through this? Well, there are no loopholes in this story, by the way. There's no except in case of. 
There's no, you got to forgive people except in case of that really bad thing that you're thinking about. There's no exceptions. There also is this reality. Now, in this story, and you might think, well, if someone comes and asks for forgiveness, right, I, 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 I believe the Scriptures would indicate that I have to forgive them, right? However, how did Jesus respond? I mean, the, the penultimate moment in, in this in the Scriptures is when Jesus is being nailed to a cross, and He, and he prays to God. Here these soldiers are pounding nails through His flesh. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And maybe you say, well, there's a loophole. They did it in ignorance. Well, yeah, but there was no one asking for forgiveness. They did not even believe what they were doing was in any way wrong. They were doing the job that they believed was the right thing to do. So, yes, if someone comes to you and asks for forgiveness, but we certainly, I think, we need to lean into this reality that we can forgive people even if they don't come and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't react that way, I shouldn't handle it that way. I think it can move even beyond that. So, no loopholes. And the thing that we need to do, and if you see that little trio of statements in front of you, oftentimes we would put our priority list like this. We avoid things that harm ourselves, number one. We avoid things that harm others, number two. And we put God's down at the bottom. And that is not an ordered list, but I want to encourage you that really of those three things, the most important is the third one on that list that what we would do or refuse to do harms God's heart. So here's the reality, and Jesus sets the story up this way. He was forgiven of an, a payment that was too big to pay, 10,000 talents. He refused to forgive just a very small amount that could have easily, with some time, the other guy could have, should have been able to easily pay it off with just some extra hard work and Maybe, you know, kind of not uh, putting as much in your pocket, but working to be able to pay this debt off. And we understand that. He failed to realize, he failed to cherish, he failed to understand and come to grips with how much he was forgiven. That's why I said earlier, he despised the grace of God. That's why I wanted you to sing that song about how, about, you know, his grace, his grace still amazes me. And, you know, we as believers, you know, we sing Amazing Grace or we enjoy a song like that, and we talk about grace all the time. But don't let that become just a stale little doctrinal point that we just check off grace. No, no. It's a significant, amazing, glorious, deep, from the heart of God reality, the grace of God. Grace, as you know is given to us not based on anything we, we, we do in, to get it. I'll do all this and then I'll get grace. Not, it doesn't work that way. It's given and we just accept it. It's unmerited. It's unearned. It's un, uh, unattained through our activity. And he, 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 did, he realized that. Now, I'll confess to you one of the reasons I picked this story, picked this parable. Uh, you can confess for yourself, okay? You can... You don't have to do it publicly, but you can do it yourself. But, you know, sometimes things happen, and it's just hard to forgive. And it's just hard to let that go. It's hard to kind of, and maybe it's, I remember one time we were on vacation once, and we, when the kids were small, and we were in this pool, and we had this kind of beach ball kind of thing, and 
we played this game to try to hold, who could hold the beach ball under the water long enough, right? And everyone's running around trying to knock it loose and that sort of thing. And eventually, you know what's going to happen to the beach ball, right? Because <laughs> it it's so buoyant, it just keeps popping up. And I just think, you know, if there's these kind of thoughts are that way. Someone, you see that person, you think that thought, you rehearse something, some memory, whoosh, those feelings, that thing comes back. Well, maybe you can't prevent that, but here's what we need to do. And I'll just give you this statement, and may you just settle into our hearts. When we want to forgive, focus on what God has done for you, not what others have done to you. And here's the reality. What others have done to you is a small few coins sort of thing compared to the grace of God. Hard to do, hard to remember. Make sure we don't despise, don't take lightly, don't take as cheap, don't take as insignificant the forgiveness of God. We are forgiven people. We are people that have received that kind of gift. Now, I come to the even more troubling part, verse 35. My heavenly Father also will do to you if, if, he, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Well, what's he going to do? Well, he talked about 34, being angry, delivering him to the tortures until he can pay off the debt. Now, that's a troubling passage of Scripture. There's a lot of them in the Gospels, by the way, and they should trouble us. So I, I've done some work, and I, I'm going to have to read my notes because this is sort of involved. But uh, there's at least six or seven ways this is looked at. And some of them I'm going to, I usually don't give you stuff I disagree with, but I'm going to give you the whole list and I'll just do it that way. Some have concluded that Jesus meant that a disciple can lose his salvation if he does not forgive. Okay, that's taught, maybe you're aware of that. However, that then makes salvation dependent on our good works, which the Bible says that clearly salvation is not based on our works, our performance, okay? So scratch that one off the list. But there's, that's, that's what some people have suggested. And this one I had never thought of before, but I found it in one author I was reading. Another possibility is that Jesus was using an impossible situation to warn his disciples. In other words, you're not going to be able to do this, but it's, it's kind of set up there as this standard you know, that's above us. However, if that's true, if they knew it was an impossible situation, the whole story loses its force. Why even tell, if you can't do it, if there's not any practical application, if it doesn't matter, then why bother? So that, take that one off the list. Now, this one is maybe a little bit more interesting to look at. Perhaps he meant that the disciple who does not genuinely forgive gives evidence that he or she has not really received God's forgiveness. That person may be a disciple, but he or she is not a believer. I'll give you an example. How about Judas? Was Judas a disciple? He certainly looked to be. He was one. He was named as one. But was he a believer? No. So maybe that's true. However, many, if not most, if not all, of God's people who've been born again, saved by the blood, may have trouble at times forgiving people. This one maybe hits a little closer to the, to the, uh, to the, the next two anyway. Actually, one more. And then, excuse me. I'm, I'm not ready for those two. Or perhaps this is this, uh, simply a case of hyperbole. In order to drive home a point, Jesus just sort of says it in the most extreme language to wake us up. Now, Jesus does use 
some very extreme language. You remember, we looked at it last week when Pastor Adam was talking about if someone asked for, if a son asked his father for bread, is he going to give him a stone? That's pretty extreme language to say, no, no father would do that. So hyperbole fits, but this does not seem like this is designed to, to be that kind of an exaggeration or, or stretching it out so we can understand. Two more possibilities. Perhaps the, t- the punishment, the results, take place in this life, not after death, and amounts to divine discipline. I think that is certainly true because God tells us, and we're going to come to this in Hebrews in just uh, another, as we work our way through chapter 12, he's going to talk about God loves us and he disciplines us when we're out of line. It's called chastening. And uh, it, will God chasten us if we refuse to forgive? He certainly is within his right to, and I think we could expect it. Another possibility is, is this, that Jesus had in mind the loss of eternal rewards, not necessarily eternal salvation. And that's certainly possible. But here's what I'm going to say. God is displeased when we don't forgive. And whatever that displeasure, whatever position that displeasure leaves us in, it's not a place that you and I want to be. Whether that is his chastening hand, a loss of reward someday, or, or just his, as it says, he, this is the word he uses, the master was angry. I don't want God to be angry at me. I have every reason to believe that there's plenty of reasons that he should be and could be, but I don't want to do it because I refuse forgiveness. So God will, will, dis, will, will express his displeasure. You don't want to be there, and here's the great news. You don't have to be there. You don't have to be there. So when those thoughts, those feelings, those, you know, that, that desire to not forgive, that, that, that tendency, when it just kind of bursts above the surface again, what God wants us to do is what this man missed. Go running back to the grace of God. And don't ask, what does, what's, the, what's this, this hurt for me? After all, when it comes to being hurt, we don't know everything we, that there is to know about all the facts of that story. There are some things that are just evil because they're evil. We understand that. God is not the cause of evil. God is not the source of evil. But God can even take the hurts and the evil of people and turn it into something good. I think of, uh, think of Joseph. What a story. His brothers decided they were going to kill him. That's not a good thing. And then they decided, well, let's not waste an opportunity. Let's sell him as a slave so we can get, you know, not only do we want him out of here, but we can make some money off his exit out of the land of Canaan. And then they kill a goat, dip his coat of many collars in blood, and take it to Dad and say, Dad, we don't know what's happened, but we found this. And their father goes into mourning, assuming his son has been killed by wild beasts out in the field. And they, they, they maintain that deception for years until God brings them standing before their brother back in Egypt. And you know that story. And after Jacob dies, this is right, right at the very end of the book, 4950. After Jacob dies, they think in their minds, oh no, dad's gone. Our safety net is gone. Our advocate is gone. The one that can tell Joseph what to do and what not to do is gone. Uh, we are in deep trouble right now. And Joseph makes this, this amazing statement. You meant it for, bad, for evil. God meant it for good. There's forgiveness there. Now, he also tested their hearts. That putting the money back in the bag and all that stuff. I don't have time to get into that. But he, he wanted to make sure they were sincere. He wanted to make sure they were changed. 
especially before he brings his brother that he's never met, Benjamin, down and all that. But nonetheless, there is that forgiveness. Why? Because he focused on what was God was doing for him, not what others had done to him. I'm glad we're through that. Not because it's not a value, because it is just as it is. May God help us to be people who are not like this man, who deserve justice, receive mercy, because he despised grace, he wound up judged before God. Think about what God has done for us.